coaching is teaching. This is what we've forgotten. And what you teach and how you teach needs to align with the group that you're working with. Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Sefu Bernard to the podcast. Sefu is currently the Director of Player Development for the Washington Mystics, where he helped them win the 2019 WNBA Championship. Prior to that, Sefu spent time as the Senior Director of Basketball Operations for NBA Asia, working in player development for the Toronto Raptors, and as a National Development Coach for Canada Basketball. Sefu is a high-level teacher and coach, and today we talk about the cardinal sin of coaches, the ideal rhythm between intervention and action, practical strategies to improve our feedback, and creating a more fun experience for athletes at all levels. Before we hop in, two quick things. First, if you'd like to get a free six-page PDF of the notes from this episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes, or click the link in the show details to get your copy. Second, in July, I'm launching the Coaches Club course and community. Too many coaches feel frustrated, isolated, and unsupported in their coaching. The Coaches Club Course and Community is an eight-week online cohort course and community that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader, surrounded by other like-minded coaches from across sports. The course consists of eight weekly masterclasses covering specific coaching topics, four one-on-one calls with me, and a lot more. Spots are limited, and multiple spots have already been claimed. So if you'd like to learn more, go to transformsport.org slash coachesclub, or click the link in the show details. And if you'd like to reserve your spot in the cohort, go to transformsport.org slash free call or click the link in the show details to schedule a call to talk today. I'm confident this conversation will help you get better at teaching and leading. Enjoy the episode. All right, coaches, I'm really excited to welcome Sefu Bernard to the podcast today. Um, Sefu, I'd love to I'd love to start here. Um, I actually listened to you on another podcast probably about a year ago. It might have been the Hardwood Hustle. I can't remember what podcast it was. Um, but in that episode, you called piggybacking, uh, the cardinal sin of coaches and it really intrigued me. And I started to think about a lot and reflect on my own coaching and, um, the coaches that I work with and what you said really clicked for me and why it is such a, a cardinal sin for most coaches. So can we start here? Would you just would you just explain like what is piggybacking and why is it the cardinal sin of coaches and, and how does that impact our players? Sure. Well, let me tackle this. Uh, let me go left to go right. If I'm of the belief and hopefully uh, for the sake of our conversation here, coaches are listening uh, can anchor around this one, but a coach's primary function is to direct attention to where it's needed most. And to complement that, that means they're trying to create an environment where learning is optimized, which means there needs to be rigor. And when I say rigor, I don't always mean like a physical thing, get on the line and run sprints and they have to be breathing hard. 
um, a significant part of the game revolves the mental side of it. And that again, attaches it back to what I touched on earlier, which is directing attention, optimizing learning and making sure as much as possible that the athletes are doing the heavy lifting mentally. And so you often see in a coaching intervention or in a coaching session, you have say one coach who's the lead coach or the head coach, and you have that support staff of coaches and other people who have a voice in a practice or in a, in a learning session. And somebody, the lead, speaks for a very long time. And then at the end of their introduction, explanation, intervention, whatever it may be, they pause and somebody else jumps in and adds to what was just said. And oftentimes, they're just really echoing what had been said using different words. And it's at that point, um, you know, that, that is piggybacking. But it's also at that point where the rigor that I talked about starts to drop off. Players' attention starts to go in a, a lot of different directions. And so you've lost what, what, what is one of the key functions of a coach, which is engagement, attention, uh, focus, and then connecting an instruction to action. And so it is a cardinal sin. And I think it's one of those things, um, it's, it's helpful to frame it as such, because when you frame it as such, then coaches are like, whoa, this is offensive. Do I do this? And you bring an awareness of what they're doing, and hopefully an opportunity for reflection or an opportunity for somebody else through an observation to give you feedback, how well we're maintaining a good rhythm of practice between uh, intervention and action. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I guess to follow up on that, what is the ideal rhythm between intervention and action? How, how can coaches do it better? Well, let me, I'll start by saying it really depends what you're trying to get out of it. Right. When you are in, and it really depends where the group you're with is on what I'll refer to, or Doug Lamov in his book, A Coach's Guide to Teaching, he does a beautiful job of illuminating this spectrum between novice and expert. And an athlete at any given moment, as uh, can we as coaches, can fall somewhere on that spectrum. We might be an expert in one area, but we might be a novice in another. And so when somebody is on the novice side of that spectrum, you've got to go more slowly, right? There, there's more time and attention that needs to be devoted to new learning, especially if somebody is inexperienced and they don't have the background knowledge. If you're introducing new terminology, new geography, places on the court, names, uh, sets, tactics, things that they have never done before. Um, you've got to go more slowly. You've got to allow space for them to consolidate the information that's being shared. Okay. And so that's why I say there, there is a, a, a bit of a, a depends in terms of the rhythm of it. Um, the skilled coaches are the most artful coaches that I've seen. They don't try and just do one big dump. You know, here are the 10 things we need to understand about a ball screen. And, you know, they go through the list and they say, okay, let's compete. No, there's, there's a skill and you're a teacher 
you, you understand layering or scaffolding. Um, um, some of the words that I've, I've uh, heard coaches apply might be um, uh, leveling it up or uh, what, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? Um, ah, I'm having a little mental, a mental part of my own, but um, it's the, the whole idea that um, we're adding gradually and we're finding the balance or what, what researchers would call desirable difficulty where we can get them active and playing and then we can stop and either uh, encourage them through questioning or through adding a different constraint. Um, we can get them to go deeper on a concept that we're working, we're working in. So a couple tactics or tools that coaches can use, um, I'll give two. One's called the rule of 30 and the other one is um, TLC, both of which I've stolen from uh, a brilliant basketball mind and teacher coach in Mike McKay. So the rule of 30 is simply, you wanna do your best to keep your interventions and corrections to 30 seconds or less. That's the, that's the aim, right? You introduce, let them play, pause the action, give a correction, an addition, uh, send them a different, send their attention in a different place and then let them go back again. And it's okay, you can stop again in two minutes, four minutes, five minutes, depending on what you're doing. All right, so that's, that's a great segue into TLC. Teaching, learning, and competing. And so when I was first exposed to this idea, um, it was one of those great aha moments. And it was really empowering for us as a coaching team to use this. And, and I went so far as to include it in my practice plans. Because this, for me, is the rhythm of coaching. And this is how you avoid that cardinal sin of piggybacking. And so uh, to, to give some clarity, clarity to it, any drill you're doing activity can be a teaching drill or activity. It can be a learning or competing. A teaching activity would be something that involves a lot of stoppages, right? Hey, so athletes, this is a teaching one. This is a new concept. There's a lot of detail here. So we're gonna, we're gonna stop you with frequency. A learning activity might be one where we can say, okay, hey, we're gonna let you play a little bit, but maybe we'll go half court, full court and back, all right? I heard some coaches call that a two and a half, all right? We start in the half court and we're gonna flow full court, we'll come back and then we'll stop, all right? So they get some flow and some continuity in what they're doing. And then at a set interval, you can offer a correction, feedback, whatever it may be, all right? So there's, there's more flow, less stoppages, when you're moving from a, a T drill to an L, teaching to learning. And then last in the spectrum is competing. And so a great example of competing might be, hey, let's put eight minutes on the clock, right? Let's mimic we're playing for a quarter or for an extended period of time, you're gonna play. And largely we're just gonna let them play. It's more game-like. You might be giving interventions on the fly, but you're gonna save your, your big corrections until after that longer interval goes. And so this is the rhythm of coaching. And as a coaching staff now, you can avoid the piggybacking because sometimes um, piggybacking is not uh, done. It doesn't come from a bad place. But when you don't have an idea for the feel or the rhythm or when you're gonna get a stoppage and then there's a stoppage, everybody feels like I need to get this in right now because I might miss the opportunity. Whereas if you know when the stoppage is taking place, 
And even better, if everybody, everybody as as in coaches, if all the coaches' attention is directed on a specific thing. All right, Luke, you're watching offensive rebounding. Mike, you're on defensive transition. I'm going to be watching for how well we take care of the details as we flow into our, our early offense. And so we get that stoppage. Now, you know, Luke, you're watching rebounding, so you shouldn't be giving commentary on something you're seeing in our early offense. And so then you have pointed feedback from all three. I don't bleed over as the head coach because I know it's Luke's job to talk about rebounding. So I give my quick one, two, three. I hand it over to you. You give your points or not. And so two does our other fictional coach and Mike. And then we get out and we play. And that's how you find rigor, rigor in your, 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 your training environment. And that's how I think you can optimize learning and establish a rhythm with your players so they know there's no frustration. Like, ah, oh, coach, stop. Come on, man, stop interrupting. Hey, 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 I told you this is a T. There's detail here. All right, other times they're going to let them play. That's really good. There's, there's so many good things in that. I, I'd love to just know a little bit more on your thoughts about feedback really. And, and you started to talk about at the end there, the importance of um, observation really is what you're getting at. And, and each coach having something specific that they were observing for. Can you talk about the importance of in the connection with observation and feedback and how coaches can get better at those two things? Hmm. Well, okay, so I'm going to tackle this from a really broad perspective. And if you want to go deeper, then stop me or kind of draw on something and we can go there. I'm happy to. I heard um, uh, a friend of mine, a coaching friend of mine, or he's now a coaching friend of mine. We're in a book club together. His name is, is Mark Manella. Um, and he said something that really rang true for me, which was if you give somebody a blank piece of paper, it can sometimes be overwhelming. If we add some lines to that paper, then we give some structure for how what you're going to write or how you're going to use it would take place. If we give them a template, and now we give them more structure. So it's actually more freeing because they have an idea for how things should flow. And I think in many ways, this relates to feedback. If we start a session and it's a blank piece of paper, feedback can go in a myriad of different directions. And so we need to add a framework, a structure, uh, an intention for where we place our attention, even as a coaching team. And I see this a lot and I've experienced it a lot um, where maybe I'm working with a group of coaches I've never had experience with. And in my mind, I'm, th I'm thinking, okay, here are the three things that we're going to focus on for this session. But on those days where I don't do a good job of explaining to them what our three things are, I find that I'm getting feedback and the totality of feedback is on 10 different things. And as the head coach, that's my failing because I haven't given any structure to where you should be placing your attention. So it's, it's one of the things that I've, I've observed in some, some really good coaching environments is that there is, before the session starts, there is 
um, some structure given to where coaches, what coaches should be watching for, where they should be looking. And what are the things based on where this athlete is in their development plan, where they should be placing, uh, sorry, what we should be looking for and what we'll be correcting. Because at any given moment, you could be correcting like 10 different things, but that doesn't serve the athlete. You know, I've got a picture that I often share and it's, um, um, it's a shot of five different coaches on a team. And this is a high school program. You have five different coaches and they're all giving an athlete in game, five different points of emphasis, things that they've observed. So what is that athlete supposed to remember? And so this is the big one. Um, you know, I, I call it feedback fidelity said differently. It's aligned feedback. Hey, let's, let's sync up on the things that we're going to give feedback to the, to on this athlete. Let's ensure that it connects to what we've been working on in our practice and may perhaps our development plan. So there's a consistency built around the type of feedback and the expectations. This is the rigor part of giving you feedback. And now I'm expecting that the thing I've given you feedback shows up. Transfer and retention. Did I answer that question? Did yeah, I no, absolutely. Like that's, that's really good. And, and I think that was pretty practical too. I, you know, I, it's been so uh, challenging for me uh, coaching a fourth grade basketball team right now to do what you just talked about at times, because like you said, at any given point, there's like 10 things that like one of my, one of my kids, like half the time he's traveling, like, <laughs> it, but, but we're working on something different. And so it is so challenging. And as part of the art of coaching, like, all right, I've got to stay focused on this thing, even though there are these other things that could be corrected. Um, and, and although it's been challenging, I'll say that I've seen the positive impact of it on a lot of these kids is, and even just after about four, four weeks of a couple of practices a week, some of these kids have, have really developed skills that weren't there before. Um, and we've only really focused on a handful of skills. Like we've, we've stayed very focused on just a few things, um, but those things are like starting to transfer to games. But, but in that it's, it's been a challenge for me to stay focused with that feedback on, okay, here's what we're working on right now. Oh my gosh, I see this other thing that also needs coaching, but I've got to, I've got to set it to the side right now. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't engage that if I want them to actually learn this thing that we're focused on. And to echo what you said, it's been super important for me to plan out like what the focus is of my different um, drills or games and practice so that I have it and so that it keeps me aligned to it. And, and one of the other things that's been very helpful for me, and I got this from Doug Lamov's book as well, was just the idea of a retrieval list. And so like after practice, I've gone in and have a spreadsheet of the different concepts we talked about and just putting an X on the days that we actually worked on that concept and then just to actually look at that retrieval list and then observe practice and say oh like these things that we've worked on multiple times they're the things that are showing up the things that we've only hit on once yeah they're not they're not showing up and nor should i really expect them to your your summary there is is bang on and the practical example of a retrieval list 
um, is a powerful um, share that comes out of uh, Doug's work. I, I, I love it. I've utilized it. I'm still um, trying to integrate it into to what I'm doing, whether it be with uh, younger athletes or with uh, professional athletes. Um, yeah, I'm tracking with you 100%. And I definitely can relate to what you're sharing, uh, working with young kids. Um, I started a, a grassroots program here where I live. And for many of these kids, this is their first experience with basketball. And bigger than that, most of them don't have a reference point for the sport because they don't watch it. They don't come from countries where basketball has, say, the same level of uh, importance in the family um, as in, say, North America or in other parts of Europe. So they have no idea. And uh, the same thing happens. You know, I've got coaches who come in, they're observing or they're coming to support and kids running around, dr taking one dribble, taking five steps and taking one. It's a travel. It's a double dribble. It's a, not important. Not important. But did you see that when she saw a chest on her on her line, she changed direction? Ah, that's important. That's one of our, you know, vision while they're, you know. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That, 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 that is um, one of my big takeaways. And the thing that um, I'm most intentional about is this whole idea of uh, the consistency of our feedback and making sure that it's uh, aligned and complementary. Mm. That's really good. Good example. And that, and that segue is kind of in one, into one of the other things I wanted to talk about. Just talk to me about the importance of linking perception and action in player development. Where, where are most coaches getting it wrong with that? And how can we get it right or get, get better at it? This is a, a big question. It's a really good question. And in all fairness, it's one that uh, I have been wrestling with for a number of years and I continue to. I think as humans, I'm gonna try not to get too deep on this. <laughs> But as humans, we have um, one of our, our blessings and our curses is trying to um, simplify things down, kind of break it down into these rational chunks that make sense to us. And we, we end up stripping away the richness of the experience and, and probably said more accurately is we've forgotten what learning takes, how learning takes place. And um, in an effort to really um, improve a specific thing, we've for forgotten that there is uh, no disconnect. No matter how much we want, might want to rationalize it, there isn't a disconnect. Um, in, let's say just let's keep it in basketball, right? So basketball is a team sport. It's a group invasion game. It's barrier free. It's a contact sport. And how a, how a technical skill comes to life is dependent upon context. So the context is driven by the environment within which that skill needs to come to life. Said differently, there's limited time, there's limited space, there are bodies. It's, I mean, basketball is uh, organized chaos. That's the beauty of it. There's a randomness to it. And so Daniel Coyle talks about this one. Sorry, I know I'm jumping around a little bit. Hopefully I'll bring it all together. 
So Daniel Coyle in uh, his book, Talent Code, does, it does a beautiful job of illustrating um, or uh, delineating, separating between two things. He called one um, a hard skill versus a soft skill, okay? Um, a hard skill is something that needs to be done the same way over and over and over again. Think archery, you know, shoot, shooting. Um, there's a num numerous activities where that thing needs to be done with exactitude and precision, unwavering, right? You largely see hard skills come um, expose themselves in barrier environments or uh, non-invasion activities where there isn't somebody charging at you, tackling you, trying to take your object away from you. So it's easy. You know, if I'm in the Olympics and I'm, um, um, I'm target shooting, I've got to maybe come up, you know, um, ski, get to my target, take my breath, go to my routine and shoot my target. So those are hard skills. The other end of the spectrum are soft skills. That how that skill comes to life changes based on the environment, time, space, um, defenders. And so as I've thought about that definition, what I came to realize is that for me, in my opinion, in basketball, there's only one hard skill. And even then, I'm going to put an asterisk beside it. And that hard skill is shooting. In fact, you could argue, and I argue against myself, that the only time that that is a hard skill is maybe a free throw, free throw shot. Because that's the only time you have an uncontested shot with, you know, without all the, the other things that would cause you to rush it or bring it up on a different angle, a defender, you know, all these other things. And so we teach, historically in basketball, we teach things as if they are hard skills footwork, defensive slides, shooting, passing, all these things, when in fact they're not. You know, the most overtaught skill in basketball is the chess pass. And it's the least used skill in the game. As soon as you put a defender in front of somebody, now the, the pass is coming off the side of the body, your angle of deployment is just different. That's just the realities. So the whole idea when we talk about perception action, right, is we need to introduce the skill in and now you can, you can layer it, you can stagger it, and you can progress it in, um, with a thoughtfulness, but you need to introduce as many of those con contextual elements as possible. I heard a cone calls it bones, not cones. So if I'm teaching passing, monkey in the middle, we can do that, right? So now I've got to throw a pass with a body on that line. I've got to figure out how to create an opening or a window to get that pass off. Right, that might be ugly early, but you'll have better retention and transfer because the skill that you're trying to grow or build is being done so in the in an environment that mirrors where they're going to have to apply it once you get into small sided two v two, three on three, four and four, and eventually into the five and five version of the game. And then the last piece um, that's kind of baked into your question, perception, action, is that basketball is a visual skill. You have to be scanning your environment and being aware of what's in front of you. But beyond that, you have to be able to anticipate and perceive that which has not yet unfolded. And so those to me are actually the most fundamental fundamentals in the game. 
but they are the most challenging things to teach. And it's very difficult to compartmentalize them into nice, even, perfectly uh, formulated drills. So it's harder. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's so good. I love your example of monkey in the middle with this fourth grade team that I'm coaching. Uh, we haven't done any blocked passing drills. We've just played a bunch of keep away. And so either it'll be like, uh, the offense has an advantage or maybe sometimes the defense has an advantage and limit the space a little bit. And it's literally just keep away. They've got to connect a certain amount of passes to get a point. Right. And so it's competitive too. And um, yeah, they're, they're getting better at making passes in a random challenging environment. Whereas like you said, like the chess pass, it's just, just almost never happening in the game. Um, so why would we spend our time on it in practice, especially when, kids are there to have fun and play. Um, mm -hmm. here's, here's my next question and kind of continue on that train of thought. How do we create a more fun experience for athletes in sport? Um, I know that you're really passionate about this at the youth level, but I, and I would love to know, obviously as someone who works from the grassroots level, all the way to the professional level, level are those principles of, of fun, uh, the same for all athletes? Do they change? Um, but then just overall, how do we create a more fun experience for our athletes? So you're right. I am very passionate about this, selfishly and unselfishly. Um, let me start on the high performance end of the spectrum. And then I'll, we'll come back and we'll have some fun with the other end of the spectrum, uh, which is youth sport. And when I refer to youth sport, I'm talking U15 you know, on down. So I am team anti-grind. I'm proudly team anti-grind. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting somebody to make some t-shirts for me and, and, and I'm going to wear them. And so for me, this is absolutely uh, integral. You know, what we've uh, undergone in the last say 20 years is the commodification of sport. The, um, you know, it's become a business. And it's really uh, the adultification of sport. We're taking adult thinking or applying it to youth sport. And so often what's happening is coaches, you know, experienced coaching in a certain way. And so they say, well, that's the way I was coached. I'm going to coach the way I was coached. Adding to that, Manawatsa, uh, the president of PGC basketball, he said it even better. It was like a kidney, kidney punch for me when he said it. He said, Oftentimes we coach the way we were parented. And that one hit me hard because, I, you know, a young coach, uh, I realized, yeah, my parental messaging that, that I received was being coming out in my coaching. I couldn't believe it. Um, so I, I, I like to throw one out because if, when coaches start to reflect, they'll, they'll feel it and they'll know it. Um, and so coming back to the high performance side of things. One, we've got guiding principles, right? Washington Mystics. We, we spent a lot of time on our culture. We spent a lot of time on our guiding principles. The second guiding principle for us is joy in the journey, right? That's right up there. We talk about it all the time. And so what's interesting and somewhat ironic to me, the people who are pushing, this is a grind, this is all, they're working at places and spaces that is not at the pinnacle of sport. And although there is tons of things that's mundane and routine and has to be done repeatedly, 
on that end of the spectrum, if you spend time with uh, anybody who's an Olympic sport or in a professional sport background, they're trying to find ways to remind players that this is a joyful experience. This is a game. Yeah, we want to compete and yeah, we want to win, uh, but we need to find joy in the journey. And this is a selfish and unselfish thing. It's beyond just kind of being hoity-toity, um, happy-go-lucky kind of environment. It's like, no, the most resilient athletes are the ones who can find the magic in the mundane. The ones who uh, understand that there's some need-to-dos before we get to our, our want-to-dos. And they do it joyfully. So for me, anchoring on joy and wonder and curiosity are qualities that show up in the best of the best. But what they feed into and lead into is a resiliency. We're not hiding that there's work. We're not hiding there's going to be days you want to show up and there are going to be days you don't want to feel like it. But we're also equipping them with the skills to, uh, to, that feeds into this grit or resiliency, resiliency thought, resilience of emotion, this ability to bounce back because you love what you do. And so if you spend all that time in youth sport, collegiate sport, grinding it, and you know, taking out the fun, right? You're really reducing something to an experience that will end up hurting them later. Now, other end of the spectrum. Most powerful um, framework paradigm um, that was shared with me again from Mike McKay is your who and your why equals your what and your how. Most people start with the what and the how. What are we going to do in practice? We start writing out a practice plan. You know, we're coming up with these drills, you know, and, and then we go, okay, let's go and do it. But it doesn't connect to your who and why. Who are you working with? You're working with six, seven, and eight-year-olds? Why do they participate? And there's tons of evidence and research that's been done on this. This is not my opinion or somebody else's opinion. There's tons of group. Project Play is doing a phenomenal job of really going deep on that. I know USA Basketball is hockey. Um, USA Hockey has done it. Uh, hockey Canada has done it. Canada Basketball has done it. There are a lot of international groups all right, so this is not opinion that have done a cross section. Um, sorry, uh, in football globally, they've done it as well. That demonstrates kids U13 uh, winning is not top three, much less top five on their list of things of their whys. Do kids want to compete? Yes, absolutely. Do they want to achieve success? Yes. For sure. Do they want to feel like they're improving and there's competency and all those things? Yes. But higher up on the list is this feeling of social emotional safety, this feeling of being a part of something, this idea of I'm just doing this. I want to be with my friends. You know, I like the way my body feels when I'm doing this thing. I don't have words for it. These are all these other things that are their whys and connect their age and stage developmentally appropriate. For these kids. And so just to kind of bring it all together, when we talk about fun, we need to look at our, our who and then complement that with understanding why they're getting, getting better. You can still have an environment in youth sport where there are 
laughs. You know, for us at ACX Basketball, we talk sweat, smiles, and shining eyes. If you're missing one of those three ingredients, you're missing the point. But if you get all three of those things, right? Sweat infers, there's a, there's a physical intent. They've been moving. Smiles, there's a joyfulness, right? But without the shining eyes, or if we just have smiles, we could have shallow fun, laughing at rather than laughing with a goofiness, a silliness. That's not an enriching environment. But when we get shining eyes, there's this hunger, this thirst, this eagerness, like, yes, coach, come on, let's keep going, right? Now you're getting into wonder and curiosity. Now you're getting into deep learning, which is deep fun which is a more robust type of fun. This is said differently. This is when you're just getting lost in play. You and a ball and a court, imagination, right? Come on in for dinner. No, I don't want to go. You know, come on, practice is over. No, can we stay? Right? This is what fun is. And so I challenge coaches to define fun. And I challenge the kids that I work with also. I differentiate. Let's talk about deep versus shallow fun. Because we're going for deep fun. If you want shallow fun, there's somewhere else for you. But if you want this feeling of improvement, this feeling of being a part of something, this feeling of, you know, we see you, you're heard, you're listened to. We're not depriving you of the game. So like for us at ACX Basketball, we never want to hear this. When are we going to play? No, they show up, we're playing. We're not withholding the game, which you see so often, right? We're going to spend an hour and a half doing all these drill skills, and then you're going to earn your way to this closing play. Now, as Carol Dweck says, we go hard first. We're going to play and play and play and play. Then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, kind of hide the veggies and tomato sauce by doing some skills and drill work. And then we're going to come back and play whole part whole. That's fun. <laughs> that is fun, man. That's so good. I sent out a form, uh, a survey to uh, the parents of the kids that I'm coaching on this fourth grade team before the season started. And I asked that the kids fill out the form without the parents' help. And one of the things I put on there was, why are you playing basketball? And I believe every single one of them mentioned fun in their answer in some way. And so, mm. like you said, like, it's just, it's true. They're there to play it. They're there to have fun. And then when you can define it for them too, like, here's what fun is going to look like. Um, Cause that's important too. Cause it can get it like through fourth graders. There's been some times in our practices where it has gotten goofy and I'm like, and there's that part of me that's the coach like, oh, like what? But then I also have to remember, like, all right, they're fourth graders. Like, remember where they are. And they probably just haven't learned some of these things. They've never seen it or experienced it in terms of fun, equaling lots of effort and focus, but also improving at the same time. So I love that. Hmm. Um, man, yeah. Hey, could, sorry, can I, tag, can I yeah. tag on to that? Yeah. You know, and you're right, we could go on this forever. But oftentimes, because we forget we forget what it's like to be a kid. Mm. And this is what I, when I call that adultification, it's when you kind of bring this lens that's of an adult. Hey, let's go to work. You know, you hear it in our language. This is something we fight for in ACX basketball. There's, nobody said, no kid, no kid. Hey, I, I really want to practice. All right. I want to play. Now, if that kid's around an adult and they talk about, hey, you got to practice, you got to practice, and they love the game, then they'll pick up on that. But really, they just want to play. Even being focused on a skill for, for, for a kid, U15, is still play. They're just lost in the experience of trying to improve that thing. 
So that's the one thing, you know, and, and when you have a misalignment between the who and the why as the coach and the who and the why as a participant, that's where you end up with this friction, right? We have the wrong person working with these kids and that, that creates uh, opportunity for a real problem, right? There's nothing wrong with being a high performance coach and you just want to work with athletes who can think high level, no problem, but you shouldn't be coaching kids. Greg Popovich is, is my, one, of, one of my favorite coaches, right? And I love Greg Popovich to death. I wouldn't let him coach my kid. I might let him talk about what it's like to be at, you know, the NBA level and what it's like, you know, how he worked with them. Greg Popovich is not skilled to coach a U8 team. And I think, I'm not, I don't know Greg Popovich, right? I've watched him work, but I think he'd probably say the same thing. And I think this goes back uh, to something you touched on earlier. This is the failing of the North American model is we take people who are working with adults at the pinnacle of that endeavor, which is a different skill set working with an adult athlete. And we bring them and we say, okay, well, they get paid the most. They're in the, in, on TV the most. They're the most high profile. So they're the best of the best. And let's go bring them in and have them inform what we do in youth sport. And that's where we, we fall off. We've got a disconnect. And you see in other sports and in other places in the world, they say, no, you know, you need a certain skill set to be working with this age group of, of kids. Teachers know this. You're yeah. not going to take the high school calculus uh, teacher and then have them teach, you know, grade three math they may not have the skill. It's a completely different skill set. And, 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 and coaching is teaching. This is what we've forgotten. And what you teach and how you teach needs to align with the group that you're working with. Boom. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. That's so good. And <laughs> it, you're so right. It, yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that we haven't, there's still a lot of work to be done to design youth sport experiences that actually fit the kids that are what they want and what's best for them. So I love that. Well, I want to respect your time, but before we go, I've got, I've got a few rapid fire questions for you. Um, just want to know the first things that come to your mind. Uh, here's my first one. Uh, describe either the best or your favorite coach that you've either played for or coached with in three words. Oh man, this, this is like, I'm the worst at these games. <laughs> All right, let's do it again. Get, take it from the top. I'm terrible at these games. Oh, you're good. Go ahead. Your favorite coach that you played for or the, mm -hmm. your favorite coach that you've worked with and describe them in three words. So I'll give you mine. Mine's my high school soccer coach, Coach Chug. And I would describe him as lighthearted, competitive, and loving. All right. I'm not putting a name to it, but I can see this person. Um, they were just passionate and caring. And I'm trying to get one word. Uh, I don't have a word. They just got you better, mm. right? You know, they, they knew their craft. They cared about you as people. And then they just helped you improve. 
this person I'm thinking of. Sorry, I don't know what the one word is for that. If you got it, give it to me. No, I love it. That's great. It's a great description. <laughs> Here's the next one. The most fun part of coaching is blank. Wonder. Hmm. Seeing that, that in the athletes? Yeah. Young or old, it's there if you look for it. That's the best. Yeah, I love that. That's good. I wish I would have known blank before my first coaching experience. Dang. Um, I don't have one. Uh, I don't have one word, but I can keep it tight. Um, the person over the player. That's good. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, here's my last one. I know I'm successful as a coach when blank, and it could be more than one word. When kids come back to me years later and you see the impact on who they've become from seeds that were sown many years before. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so good. Such a good perspective on that. Uh, well, Sefu, this has been phenomenal. Uh, tell people how they can connect with you and uh, see the work that you are doing. I can be found online in um, most of the social media outlets. It's my name, Sefu Bernard. Uh, for those who are into more of the quote unquote high performance end of things, you can find me at the lab. I, uh, it's my blog site. T-H-E-L-L-A-B-B.com, the lab.com. And then for those who are more driven about the youth sport experience, U15 down, ACX basketball, athlete-centered experience, acxbasketball.com. And then all the um, all our social media outlets are just ACX basketball. Feel free to hit me up, reach out, follow, um, and uh, yeah, chime in. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode, and thanks again to Sefu for coming onto the podcast. I really hope you can take something from this episode and apply it to your coaching. I know that I absolutely loved and was challenged by Sefu's TLC strategy, dividing our practice into teaching, learning, or competing segments. And I love the rule of 30, keeping our intervention and feedback to around 30 seconds or less. If you want to get the podcast notes from this episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes, or click the link in the show details to get a free six-page PDF of the notes from today's episode. And if you enjoyed this episode or found it valuable, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, and give us a shout-out on Twitter, at CoachesClub underscore. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.